Civic Radio. Has the world of commerce encroached irrevocably on our civic spaces? And how much do we care? How much is civic exclusion growing because of what participation demands or expects of us? Civic Radio is on the road, seeking out the people and organisations that are exploring these topics in different ways. Today we met Adam Greenfield. I'm a writer and I like to think of myself as an urbanist, although I suppose that you only really earn the right to call yourself that after many, many years of immersing yourself in the life and culture of as many cities as possible. But, you know, if I could, I would. What does Adam think about our civic spaces and civic exclusion? But first, what does being a citizen mean to him? Wow, it's a big question. Well, it means taking an active interest in not merely your own fate, but the fates of the human beings and and the natural systems that you share a world with. It means being actively involved in trying to um, enhance the uh, the common prospects, work towards the common betterment, and take responsibility for the fact that you've arrived on this planet and are standing on the shoulders of all the generations that came before you and and have to prepare for everybody who's to inherit the earth from us. It's... um, it's a big prospect, but you know, weirdly enough, um, I, I think of myself as being Jewish about five minutes a year. But in the Jewish tradition, there's a beautiful phrase that I think of often in, in the question in regard to the question of what it means to be a citizen, and it goes something like this: It is not incumbent upon you to complete the work, but neither are you at liberty to desist from it. And what it means is that. Um, we have an affirmative obligation to, to roll up our sleeves and get involved and, and use our energies towards really helping to enhance uh, common outcomes. But, you know, you're under no obligation to, to be uh, a hero, right? You do what you can, when you can, as you can. You know that it's your responsibility to do that, but nobody's asking you to go uh, above and beyond to the point that it, it wears you down to the bone and you have no further resources to devote to yourself or your loved ones. There seems to be like increased awareness of the idea of being a citizen and people participating and even just in terms of language and the way people are talking about it and initiatives that they're setting up. I, I agree with you that there has been an amplification of voices who are, who are speaking you know, a language that, that's very congenial to me. When I walk through your civic shop, for example, I see um, the most heartening flares you know across the horizon people popping up here and there who are who are speaking the same kinds of language hacking the same kinds of thoughts really wanting to get involved in things the trouble is i i worry that that's a a self-selection phenomenon and i i i know exactly why it's happening i i believe that it's happening because of the general retreat of the state across north america and western europe from um, provision for citizen services and, and for um, public services that, that the state used to afford as, as a matter of um, as a matter of right and, and a, as something that we expected as a matter of course. You know, since Mrs. Thatcher and President Reagan in you know 1979, 1980, we've had you know what is that? That's now uh, 35 years of uh, a triumphal discourse in which the state's no longer willing to provide those things. The, the welfare state is over. President Clinton ended welfare as we know it in the United States. And there's, there's a vacuum. And we're feeling it. You know, it, the, the, the word precarity, you know, it has gone from being sort of an obscure 
um, little entry in the dictionary to being a word that's that's on more and more lips. We are all all of us in precarious states, including those of us who are frankly quite privileged. Um, you know, there's that constant nagging worry that um, everything is going to fall apart. Into that breach, the more energetic and enthusiastic and and um, you know, people who are, are just the bright sparks among us, they, they look around and they say, well, why should we put up with this? What is it that we can do ourselves to repair this situation? What is it we, can do, you know, we can do ourselves to provide for uh, our environments, our communities, and the people around us? Um, and that's led to, to extraordinarily inspiring initiatives, extraordinarily inspiring uh, activities and, and um, insights and, um, you know, upwellings of creative culture of the kind that you see, again, the evidence everywhere, you know, from open source hardware to, you know, collaborative um, intellectual culture, you know, the open culture movement. Um, stoked, you know, is the word that, that comes to mind. It's like a surfer word. I, I have this, like, fountaining of energy inside me every time I contemplate what those people are doing, and it makes me want to go out and, and do things like that. But I worry that these initiatives are too tightly grained you know, they're, they're not capable of replacing in toto everything the state did at scale. And so what we have is a, a condition in which you either have, you, you, the market can act at scale and the state can act at scale, but self-organized, bottom-up, citizen-led groups can only do so much. In open hardware particularly, you see this continual tendency to reinvent the wheel. Every time somebody comes up with a framework for you know, an open source hardware um, universal construction kit or something, nobody ever builds on the legacy of, of past initiatives, even when those initiatives are easily searchable and they're out there in the public domain. They're, they're you know, common intellectual property. You could use them, you could build on them, you could elaborate on them. Everybody always wants to start over from scratch. And I think it's the same thing with a lot of these initiatives. And I, I worry about that. Um, I worry that a lot of them as well are critically dependent on the energies of a single individual or a small group of a core cadre of individuals. Um, and our inspiration and our energy can't last forever, particularly in times when we sometimes need to, to you know, withdraw into ourselves and use those resources to take care of our own. I'm simultaneously inspired and energized and also fairly concerned about the if you will, the sustainability of these initiatives. And I, I find myself thinking more and more about how they can um, connect to one another, uh, form sort of a self-healing mesh and be sustainable on, on that basis. I was thinking about the idea of, you know, how much cities and how they work has changed and whether there's a need, because cities are operating in different ways, for, for there to be new technology to deal with this. Well, I, I think that... What you and I refer to lightly as new technology is already part of the picture. You know, we use technologies like, like email or text messaging or, or uh, cloud-based documents, um, shared documents, you know, to coordinate our activities. And we kind of don't even realize that we are using advanced technologies. We do use open wireless networks. We do use these very, you know, distributed, decentralized technologies of communication and coordination to, to advance our own ends. I always like to point out that the moment you pick up that particular package of functionality, that particular instrumental ensemble of technologies, uh, you start in the hole. And you start in the hole in a couple of ways. You start in the hole environmentally. You know, there's an environmental cost. 
that's associated with developing these, you know, physically with, you know, extracting the minerals from the earth and, and uh, you know, fabricating the chips on which and the, the information processing is founded. The moment you pick up a smartphone, you own the karma of where that smartphone was manufactured, almost certainly in a factory in the Pearl River Delta around Shenzhen, somewhere in the south, you know, of coastal southern China. People build those, those phones under perilous conditions, under terrible labor conditions. They have very little in the way of collective bargaining power. They have very little in the, in, in the way of ability to push back against, you know, what management imposes upon them. It's a toxic environment. So, you know, the moment you pick up a laptop or, or an iPhone or something like that or, you know, a wireless router, you're, you're already in the hole for that. You own that karma. My question is, can we use the master's tools to build different kinds of houses entirely? Do we have to replicate exactly the same socio-technical and socio-cultural assumptions that were embedded in these things by their makers, or can we turn them to different ends? I don't know. I suspect, and you know, I've dedicated my working life to the proposition that we can, that we can form entirely new kinds of organizations and patterns, that some of which learn the lessons of history and build on things like the cooperative movement or, or the syndicalist movement, some of which are entirely new forms of distributed, you know, very lightweight organization that arise and subside as we need them, may not even have a name. I'm always reminded that if we, I try not to use the word potential, I try to talk about things that either have been enacted or haven't yet been enacted. And if we, if we believe that there is a possible future state of something and it's capable of being enacted, we actually have to do the work of enacting it to see if, in fact, it was potential at all or not. Otherwise, it's a fantasy. You know, that, that inherently requires time and effort and commitment. I suspect there are extraordinarily fruitful possibilities out there that look very little like the ways of doing things, like the, the modes of governance and, and the deals that were offered in the city presently. And I suspect, too, that a lot of them are founded on the canny, clever, intelligent use of, of networked information processing systems. Maybe it's something... You know, as my wife would say, that, that we see too often and then forget to see. We forget to give it its due. Um, it's, it, these technologies have faded into our lives so completely and so quickly with such dramatic force and, and speed. You know, maybe we need to kind of haul them out into the light and really think about, wow, we do have these capabilities that we didn't have before. And our lives do have these possibilities now that we didn't have five or ten years ago. So earlier you talked about the vacuum and we talked about sort of young, groups of young committed, exciting, even young in just ideas. Like yes, as not people. necessarily chronologically. Um, do you see a role for sort of corporations and business within this? I want to distinguish very carefully between corporations and business. Um, I do see a role for businesses. I see a role for small, local um, you know, uh, businesses of a certain scale. I, I, I don't have anything against the market per se. What I have a problem with is finance capital and with organizations that operate at scale that are just um, unaccountable to the communities in which they operate and that tend not to, to, to extract value from communities and not return very much of that value to communities. I, I see very circumscribed roles for large corporations. There are a couple of things that they can do that I'm very grateful for. I always say, you know, for all that I beat up on, on IBM and Intel and Cisco and Siemens, you know, my God, if, if, if I needed um, to have a, a wastewater treatment plant installed or, or some kind of communication infrastructure at scale, I can't do that 
and no bottom-up group that I'm aware of can do that. As utopian as I can be, sometimes I don't necessarily think we have the option of living in a world without those organizations. They, they will be here. They will continue to be here. As disturbed as I am by, by the general tenor of their activities and as much as I tend to dislike the subjectivity that they induce both in the people who work for them and, and in the people who uh, consume from them, uh, I think we need to work out some kind of modus vivendi, some kind of way to share the environment. Um, that might mean putting um, constraints on their ability to act. That might mean curtailing their ability to act freely in the world and kind of reining them into roles in which they don't have unlimited profit potential uh, but are still able to make a healthy living as long as they're serving the common good. Again, I'm, I'm the world's strangest anarchist because I do. I see a role for business. I see a role for the state. Um, but ultimately, I think these things need to be led by and strongly accountable to um, autonomous local groups of citizens. And, and, you know, again, well, that word, that, that word citizen is also problematic because here I sit, you know, we're in Somerset House right now. Uh, I'm a resident of London. I like to think that I'm a Londoner. I like to think that I contribute to London, but I'm certainly not a citizen. And um, that's not likely to change anytime soon. And it's the, 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 the same thing is the case in any great city on earth. A very significant percentage of the people that are affected by anything that we decide to do together are technically and formally not citizens. We need to be very careful around our language and our conceptions of things. You know, I, the, the ideal that's evoked by the word citizen, the civic, you know, these things are, are, are beautiful to me. And they're a source of enduring inspiration. They're, they're, you know, it's one of the highest callings I can imagine. But our polities are exclusionary. And if we really want to, over the longer term, breathe life back into the notion of the civic, we're going to have to do so in a way that is inclusive and that winds up um, embracing everybody who finds their fates entwined with the city in which we live. And that's, a, that's an interesting question. How do you, and whose responsibility is it to evoke, and how do you do it? How do you evoke that passion in the individual? Yeah. Like evoke the passion of being a part of a bigger whole yeah. within the individual. How do you, how do we do that? Well, you know, the twentieth century knew how to do that, but it did so in some really unhealthy ways. Um, you know, mass movements, um, you know, are certainly something that mobilized uh, individual energies towards a common purpose, but they did so in the framework of a total totalitarian system of values and, and outcomes. We're we're faced with an infinitely more difficult challenge in that our culture and our communication technologies are all about individual choice. And if there are 18 million people in the city, there are 18 million people that you somehow need to separately convince that they have a common destiny. And some of those people, you know, we all have a different array of talents and skills and, and abilities, capabilities, and predilections. Uh, some people, they tire easily. Some people, um, their lives have, have um, left them unable, you know, or, or with uh, not much in the way of resources to contribute to, to anything beyond getting up in the morning and, and, you know, surviving until they're able to go to sleep that night. And I, I don't believe in coercion, right? I don't believe in even the kind of soft coercion of, of um, you know, emotional blackmail, that, that commonly goes along with some of these efforts of like, let's pitch in together, you know, let's all do a good job. It's, it's, um, 
it's distasteful to me to blackmail people into doing what you think they ought to be doing paternalistically. Um, so not only is the challenge about um, yoking some significant percentage of those people into common purpose, but it's about providing each one of them with what industry would call a value proposition or uh, an incentive framework that makes sense to them and that resonates with their own values and that resonates with what they find in their hearts. The good news is there's plenty of work to be done and there's plenty of different kinds of things that need to be doing, uh, that need to be done. I mean, the the beautiful thing about something like Occupy Sandy was that, um, you know, if, if a thousand volunteers came in off the street, you know, and 950 of them didn't have anything more to contribute than they just wanted to lift boxes for an hour and they didn't want to think about operational strategy or they didn't want to, you know, they, they didn't care about the politics of it. Um, but they could shift boxes for an hour and then that was their contribution. That organization had a way to make use of that hour. That organization was able to, to take those people in off the street, have them work functionally and effectively, thank them for their energy and effort and, and you know, wave goodbye at them when they left um, and yet have benefited from that interaction. I think the, the cleverest organizational and process design is that which um, understands that a lot of people are tired, a lot of people have a lot of other pressures on them that keep them, you know, like job pressures, family pressures, the pressures of care for their relatives, uh, you know, economic pressures of all sorts. Um, some people are just lazy, you know, <laughs> That's, and, and there's no shame in that. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't want to guilt trip anybody. If you've got, you know, if, if you've got 15 minutes and, um, you know, that's all you ever want to give to something, we should be designing processes that allow that energy to be incorporated without trying to put the onus on somebody. Oh, you know, you should come back. You should do more. No, if all you want to do is work in the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving and not the other 364 days of the year, that's fine. As long as we have a, a process that allocates the energies uh, in, in ways that are productive ultimately overall. Because you've got to design for the reality that exists mm. rather than the what you want things to be in your head right yeah. yeah exactly i mean you know this is um this is the lesson i take away from you know in in the 20th century you know particularly the the socialist and communist world they wanted to design yeah i hope you can hear the capital letters the new man you know we're not going to design the new man uh, a because that's a sexist piece of terminology b because you know the, the somebody once said that um you know, the, the human keyboard only has so many notes. Every single melody you can think of to play with it has already been played. And so when you're designing systems and you're designing processes and ultimately you're designing things which are meant to be a society, you have to familiarize yourself with the, with the repertory of what's played on the human keyboard. Um, we're not going to be designing utopian systems. We're not going to be counting on people to be you know, infinitely energetic and enthusiastic and, and upward striving because that, that's just not who we are. Um, and I, I think that we have to look at all such claims with a gimlet eye. I think we have to be uh, unsentimental and dispassionate and understand our limitations as well as our promise. So that's looking at sort of design on a kind of macro big scale. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in the idea of a civic space. Yeah. And it's a word lots of people I hear talking about these days. And to me, a civic space, I think of a a town plaza or something like that. And I sort of understand how those things work and what they're for. But could you describe for you what a civic space is and then maybe talk a little bit about 
all these civic spaces that are coming up at the moment and what you think what you think they're doing and maybe what they should be doing I have an answer to that question which may shock people who know me um, because it's surprisingly conventional and, and even almost conservative I'm, I'm from New York originally and I don't miss a lot of things about New York, but there are two spaces in particular that uh, I think of as being tremendous uh, jewels in the New York experience and that I do miss quite acutely. And, and those are the Rose Reading Room at the New York Public Library and the main hall of Grand Central Terminal. And these are civic spaces par excellence. And, and what I like about both of them and what I think any physical arena um, that's intended for the use and enjoyment of, of the greater public ought to incorporate is that these were ennobling spaces. They were designed and built at a time when um, we thought that the common, the civic, the public was the highest expression of our, our collective self. And, you know, that instead of corporate headquarters or private estates or, you know... Um, things which can be owned by individuals or captured by small groups or, or elites, um, that it really was the spaces that we had in common and used together that we ought to devote the greatest part of our resources and our refinement and our skill. You know, in what mode that beauty is expressed, um, you know, these are matters of taste. These are matters of judgment. I'm not going to pretend that I necessarily have an answer to that. But I, I think that what I would like to see happen is some of that spirit, some of that spirit. Maybe in this country is expressed in you know in the Victorian age, in in the um, you know in the frankly imperial trappings of things. It was it was uh, a reflection of a belief in the nations and the empire's greatness, and you know for all of the problematic aspects of that. Um, you know, to this day, I'll walk under something like Admiralty Arch, and I will feel the stirrings of that purpose. If we can strip these things of their politics or, or assign them to a new politics, if it's possible to, to arrive at a language of public design that is not pompous, is not imperial, is not othering, is all of those, uh, you know, all of those values uh, put to the side, but that somehow yet has something of that scale and that um, that ability to, to connect the individual to, to a soaring aspirational sense of, yeah, I mean, I'll say the words collective purpose again. Um, you know, and, and these are, this is not a simple challenge, right? I mean, this is, uh, you're, you're basically asking to square the circle. I know, I know that. You know, I, you know I, I don't believe in utopias, but I do believe that we can arrive at some pretty interesting places together. But I always say that they, they're going to look like, uh, you know, allotments, you know, uh, gardening spaces, you know, kind of heterogeneous and, and rough and tumble and never quite finished. And there's a, a profound conflict between that aesthetic and the aesthetic that I'm thinking of when I think of a space like, um, you know, like Grand Central Station or something like that. Again, I don't know how to reconcile that, and, and that is um, something that I suspect far more talented people than I will have to address. But um, I, if, if I were to at least write the design brief for them, um, that would be the challenge I'd set before them. I really like the idea of kind of evoking a, an emotional response to 
a landscape or a piece of architecture which is brings together this kind of feeling of togetherness. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in the qualities of that feeling and yeah. whether membership of different groups or different scales is a similar feeling you can relate to or whether it's there's kind of like individual characteristics of what that bigger thing is. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say that my way is the only way of doing it. I, I feel some of those stirrings walking through the courtyard here. And I think that Somerset House is a really interesting experiment in uh, taking that kind of imperial vernacular and turning it towards an infinitely more heterogeneous population, community, and, and, and audience. Um, I don't know if everybody feels the same way. You know, I don't know if... Um, I don't know exactly how diverse the audiences that make use of this environment are. I don't know if they're representative or not representative of, of the larger population. I suspect they're actually not terribly representative, which is a shame, um, because I, I think that what's going on here is great. Um, it, it's... Again, there's, there's a little bit of that self-selection, and I think we need to be careful of that. Civic Radio is based at the Civic Shop, currently at Somerset House in central London. You can find us online at www.civicworkshop.city. Civic Radio.